Okay, welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. This episode is going to be about mystics. Throughout history, there have been strange people capable of way more than the common person. They've also been called anything from prophets to witches. But if there's one thing that can objectively be said about them, it's that they've had a huge influence on human development. Mysticism is often looked down upon by the current mainstream religions. But so is a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense. They've been demonized by the ignorant and persecuted by the powerful. It's been said they've not only founded the religious foundations in history, but also led to secret societies, like the Freemasons, Rosicrucians, the Knights Templar, or even the Illuminati, with some of these secret societies also said to be the foundations of many modern nations such as the Freemason and Rosicrucian hand in the creation of the United States. Mystics' lives are often heavily debated, or the reputations smeared of truth, the mysteries that surround them both intriguing and frightening. But their influence on the world is undeniable. On today's show, we're going to have a light overview of some mystics from humankind's history. Some may have entire episodes dedicated to them down the line because there's some that are just way too interesting to sum up in one episode. Anyway, let's hop in. Alright, the first mystic I'm going to talk about you probably pretty obviously saw coming. Grigory Rasputin. He was a Russian peasant that was born in 1869, and a mystical faith healer from Siberia, the frozen part of Russia to the west. Rasputin was the fifth of nine kids, but only he survived into adulthood. But there are accounts of one of his sisters surviving to adulthood too. Not confirmed. Anyway, all of his siblings died. He grew up uneducated, illiterate, but many believe that he was endowed with mysterious gifts. As a child, he would say strange things and apparently saw things that others couldn't. He would grow up to have jerky limbs, shuffle his feet, always fidgeting, hands always moving, but despite all his tics, people had a magnetic attraction towards him. He was someone who commanded attention. He got married at the appropriate age and had three kids with his wife, but would ultimately abandon the family. And after having a vision, he joined a monastery. A hermit outside of the monastery would turn out to have a huge influence on Rasputin, which not only led to him quitting drinking, but quitting eating meat as well, his time at the monastery shaping him into a much more religious-orientated person than he was before. But even though he abandoned his family, he would always return home to help the family on their farm during the harvest. Rasputin claimed a vision turned him to a life of religious mysticism. He was called a stranik in Russian, which meant religious wanderer. His small group of followers would refer to him as astaryets, translating to the holy fool. Though Rasputin never considered himself astaryets, they were much older and lived in seclusion and in silence. But around the year 1900, many considered him one in the making. Rasputin spoke in a Siberian dialect almost incomprehensible to civilized city Russians. 
He talked in broken sentences with no structure. What he was saying never clearly understandable, and seemingly sounded very unintelligent to those who did not know him or were just simple. Something was always missing from his sentences, leaving the listener to put it together like a puzzle. Rasputin was known as a Stranic, but Stranic were not known to preach in public. But the nomadic holy men often gained interest by the more civilized heartland Russia. Rasputin was no different. The bizarre but intensely charismatic mystic would gain attention from bishops and then the upper class. Many were amazed by his tenacious memory, psychological perspicacity, and the formidable intellect hiding behind the guise of an idiotic simpleton from the wild of Siberia. A genius who acted uncivilized, and never trying to change or hide his wild habits. At the capital, he was welcomed into the home of a high-class family interested in mysticism and the occult. This would lead to him being introduced to the Tsar, which comes from the word Caesar, the old kings or emperors of Russia, and changing the fate of Russia forever. Tsar Nicholas and his wife Alexandra were impressed when they met Rasputin, which would lead to him having a long relationship with the imperial family. The young heir to the throne had hemophilia B a blood disorder, and the whole imperial family were in deep fear that the young kid would die. Doctors weren't able to do anything for him, and his symptoms would just get worse as he got older. And being that he was the only son of uh, the whole family, the rest being just sisters, they spared no expense in trying to help their son. He was the future of Russia and their family. So the Tsarina Alexandra was very desperate and in that desperation, she turned to Rasputin, the religious mystic. Royal doctors, the best and brightest Russia had to offer, predicted the boy would die the following day. Instead, Rasputin healed him, in nothing less of a miracle to those present. The royal doctors were amazed at the boy's recovery. And then Rasputin would heal the prince over the span of years. He halted giving the kid aspirin and other painkillers, which turned out to be pretty disastrous for the kid's health. It did kill pain, but it also thins the blood, which is not good for somebody with hemophilia B. But that wouldn't be discovered until years later. Rasputin knew it, though. His ability to heal the air led to the royal family becoming very close with him, greatly reliant on Rasputin. Rasputin even healed the child from across the country, giving instructions by telegram, even predicting the outcome, and making sure the royal doctors don't bother him. Which is pretty insane that he was able to heal from many miles away from his patient. His healing prayer said to be powerful among his many mystical gifts. This obviously pissed off the court physicians. You know, the real doctors. Court physicians tried to make him out to be a charlatan, jealous that Rasputin could do naturally what they could not after a lifetime of study. Many more would step up to slander the mystic, but there was never any evidence against him. The upper class of Russia were interested in the mystical and cult long before Rasputin came. Russia had been going through a religious renaissance, and nonconformist spirit movements were prevalent. 
at this time elsewhere too in the world had many spiritualist movements forming. The God-seeking could shape their own ritual and spiritual lives for the first time since the rise of Catholicism, and many obscure Christian sects with unique ideologies were formed. Rasputin had ties to such an obscure Christian sect with strong Siberian roots, but never claimed to be a part of them. I have no idea how to pronounce it, Kliss, but it was pretty notorious with uh, its sex acts and whatnot. Some priests who were against the more mystic ways claimed Rasputin to preach false doctrines, among other sins. However, all evidence was so clumsy and fabricated, the cases only worked against the reputations of their own authors. Over the time with the imperial family, Rasputin did slowly delve into hedonism, though, which he's notorious for. But most of what was thrown against him was fabricated. After the ruling class turned on him, jealous of the peasants' privileges with the imperial family, the slander only got worse. So the Tsar ordered him to join a group of pilgrims to travel the world, eventually even going to Jerusalem and the Holy Land. But no matter how many times the imperial family tried to clear Rasputin's image, it never worked. Some even claiming that the Tsar's wife and Rasputin were secret lovers, which is pretty ballsy and bold. After all, this is an age where people just vanished if you pissed off a royal family. But the Tsar never really believed anything that was said about Rasputin and refused to bring him down. So he became the most hated person in Russia. His belief in sex being used to get closer to God or sin in general would tarnish his reputation until death, accused of a variety of immoral and evil practices. But no matter what happened, the Tsarina defended Rasputin calling him a holy man and a friend, and the only one who could keep her son alive from his sickness. Eventually, people were so pissed off, somebody tried to assassinate him. He was stabbed in the stomach and spent time in hospital, but eventually recovered. However, he was never the same man again. But he did beat off the assassin by defending himself with a stick, which is pretty cool. This is when he began to drink again. So it's safe to say he had many, many enemies, and all information regarding him at this time is suspected of fiction. He was a public enemy to both the commoners and the elite upper class. When World War I came around, he promoted peace and Russian withdrawal. This pissed off even more people. Before the war, he begged the Tsar not to go to war with Germany. This is one of his prophecies. And I quote, If Russia goes to war, it will be the end of the monarchy, of the Romanovs, and the Russian institutions. End quote. But Rasputin's warnings were ignored. The Eastern Front against the Germans was a military disaster, leading to insane amounts of casualties. The Germans consistently, utterly eviscerated the Russian armies. And they wouldn't even do better when the Tsar himself showed up to the front to command. With the Tsar's absence, this left the Tsarina Alexandra and Gregory Rasputin to rule Russia. His influence over the Tsarina was profound. 
this peasant mystic controlled the destinies of countless imperial Russian citizens. This led to even more hate of Rasputin. Everyone pointing their fingers at the imperial family, saying, They're not leading. Look, it's Rasputin in charge now. But he was the only one who could heal the heir to the Russian Empire, the Tsarina and Tsar always defending him in his place at court. And people thinking that he was the true ruler of Russia now probably led to his downfall. When talking about famous mystics, especially Rasputin, it's hard to get an objective view of the person because you have to wade through a tide of lies. Royal dynasties had been falling over for some time in Europe. The Tsar's family had numerous enemies, which became Rasputin's enemies. And historically, when people who hate someone or something take over as the ruling class, a whole bunch of BS follows. Don't get me wrong, though. Rasputin was definitely a pervert, and he pulled some shady stuff. But the majority of what's said about him, it's one of those history is written by the victors type of thing. And even creepier about Rasputin, as a mystic, he had prophecies, and a lot of them seemed to come true. Including 25 years without peace in Russia, and World War II. His prophecies are pretty chilling to listen to, it's like a death metal band lyrics. But the most creepy is the prophecy of his own death, which came true. He was lured to meet with the nobility, where the assassins pumped him with enough cyanide to kill many men through poison sweets he loved to eat. Rasputin had a sweet tooth. He also seemed to be completely unaffected by the cyanide, casually carrying on. This freaked the assassins out, so they shot him in the chest with a pistol, then ran. After some time passed, when they returned, Rasputin was not only alive, but physically fought his way out of the building into the courtyard, where he was shot again, then chained, put into a bag, and thrown into a freezing Russian river. When his corpse was found, he'd gotten out of his bindings and almost out of the bag. It was not easy to kill Rasputin. The Tsarina was horrified, but retrieved his body and buried him in a grave normally reserved for nobility. Um, according to legend, during the communist revolution, his body was dug up, then taken to be burned in the woods unceremoniously. He supposedly sat up, body aflame, dead corpse and all. Sadly, Rasputin's prophecy of the royal family came true too. The Tsar, Tsarina, and all their children were murdered by the Bolshevik revolutionaries, and communism was born. The young Nicholas was the only male child of the imperial family, the only one who could take over as Tsar and rule Russia. The Tsarina sought out occultists and mystics to help the boy where modern medical experts could not, and Grigory Rasputin answered her call. He was the only one who could keep the heir to the Russian throne alive. He was a common, low-born peasant in an age where if you were born a peasant, you died a peasant unable to rise higher in social status whatsoever. But this common peasant became one of the most powerful men in the world and commanded the destinies of millions.
Next up is Israel Regardi. Francis Israel Regardi was born at the beginning of the 20th century in 1907. He was a mystic, an occultist, a writer, and a very well-educated man. His family were poor immigrants from the Ukraine, who then later in 1921, when Israel was 13 years old, they immigrated again to the United States. He'd study art, learned linguistics from a Jewish tutor, and was very well-read from an early age. Theosophy, Hindu philosophy, and yoga became hobbies that turned into very deep interests. When he became an adult, he joined the secret society of Rosicrucians in America. Funny little mix-up about his name when he immigrated here, his original last name isn't Regardi at all. It's Regutti. But when his brother joined the British Army when they were temporarily in England, their last name was written down wrong as Regardi. But his family thought that it was suitable for their new lives, and they just accepted it, adopting the surname. He would prefer to be called Israel instead of Francis, his real first name. The young Regardi spent most of his time in the Library of Congress, constantly educating himself in obscure studies. His favorite was the unexplained or the mysterious. So he delved deep into mysterious knowledge hidden from common people, even becoming immersed in a book by Aleister Crowley and then contacted the famous occultist. Oddly enough, Crowley responded, then offered him a job as his secretary, though Alistair never offered to teach him the mystical knowledge he craved, which forced him to study on his own, which well suited him anyway, and would eventually drift apart from the man, becoming an author and never stopping in his mystic studies. Brigardi became an expert in Hermetic Kabbalah, writing many renowned books on the subject, among others. The linguistic Hebrew knowledge he gained from his Jewish tutor proved insanely useful during this part of his life. He would eventually be invited into one of the descendants of the Order of the Golden Dawn, an occult secret society. In this, he'd move up the ranks really fast and was considered quite talented. But Regardi thought the organization was corrupt with unworthy leadership. In 1934, he left the order, considering it in imminent self-destruction, and he was worried that its secret knowledge could be lost. What Brigardi really wanted was to put the information into hands of a larger group that could appreciate it. He felt like the whole secret society business was not the greatest way to keep an ancient tradition alive. But Israel Brigardi would move on to more normal studies. He became interested in psychology, psychotherapy, and studied psychoanalysis in London. But his notoriety doesn't come from his academics. He broke his vows and secretly wrote a book on the many teachings of the Golden Dawn, which made a lot of people angry. But many were secretly grateful, with some, including Regardi, considering it to be the birthright of humankind to have access to the wisdom tradition and continue its legacy, even by solitary practice like he himself did in many ways. Israel Regardi graduated with a psychotherapy degree in 1941, but joined the U.S. Army, fighting to the final days of World War II. During the war, he would study Christian mysticism in his free time, then writing a book on it after World War II ended. Then he moved to California, becoming a therapist and a chiropractor. He also taught psychiatry at an L.A. college published articles in many psychology magazines, wrote many, many books, 
The man had a very charitable and forgiving nature about him, with humility and respect for all he met, despite his immense intelligence and many achievements. Out of all his associations, Regardi first and foremost considered himself of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and would get frustrated when associated with Crowley's teachings. Once saying at a dinner party while thumping his hand on the table, and I quote, Damn it, I'm a Golden Dawn man, and not a Thalamite, and I wish people would realize it. End quote. Regardi's main passion was to preserve the teachings of the Golden Dawn. In this, he achieved great success. The man was a great and potent mystic, who perfectly straddled everyday mundane life and the mystical. He was a Renaissance man with an insane number of skills and achievements. Any of the bazillion books he wrote, a masterpiece of linguistic art. It's really a shame that he's overshadowed by more notorious mystics. Our next mystic is Helena Blavatsky, or Madame Blavatsky, was a Russian occultist and one of the founders of the Theosophical Society. She was known as a psychic a medium who could communicate with the spirit world and was an expert in Eastern philosophy and religion. And this was at a time when anyone non-Christian were considered backwards and uncivilized. Madame Blavatsky was born in 1831. She was pretty notorious, to say the least. Her life plagued by revisionist historians and constant slander by the gutter press. Especially after she died. Seriously, her name would be really drugged through the mud. But Madame Blavatsky had just as many praisers as she had haters. She traveled more in the 19th century than 90% of people in modern times travel. And nowadays it's 100% safer. Madame Blavatsky was a revolutionary, a rebel, an intellectual, an empowerer, but also called a fraud, a charlatan, a subversive of civilized society, called a heretic by the church, a supposed malefactor, but easily one of the most interesting women in history, and definitely an influential and controversial figure of the 19th century. As a woman, Madame Blavatsky was mostly self-educated like many of the time, and as a child was baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church. Many people didn't like her because she was a woman who was a free thinker, because this was a society where if you were a woman and you showed too much of your legs, you were the devil reborn. And those who called her evil were really just ill-informed dabblers in her work. But basically, anything not dogmatically Christian was considered evil in those times. In her adolescence, she was introduced to Russian mysticism and occultism, which basically became an interest of hers the rest of her life. She was also influenced early by comic practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism, which would influence her greatly. She experienced visions and strange phenomena in her youth, which would lead to her esoteric studies later in life. Madame Blavatsky got married at the age of 17 to a man in his 40s, but she left him after a couple months, then traveled the world, which was probably financed by her father. She journeyed to India, 
East Asia, the Near East, and America, always investigating mystical traditions from many cultures. Madame Blavatsky always showed an intense interest in foreign culture, which was odd for a time that had a billion more prejudices than we do today. The contradictions of her many life stories that were produced can be dismissed as slander, for the most part. Gotta remember that this lady was destroyed by the gutter press, though no doubt some of her stories may have been blown out of proportion. But her stories were always dramatic and interesting to listen to. Like one time she was traveling on a ship that was transporting gunpowder when it exploded, and she was one of the few survivors off the coast of Egypt. And she survived in Egypt by giving seances, though she hated being called a medium. It was just another spiritual path that she explored among countless others, but her mediumship was considered second to none. Madame Blavatsky was known for having time for anybody, giving it freely to anyone who inquired. She had an encyclopedic knowledge of philosophy, as well as many other spiritual doctrines. She was exceptionally well-read. Growing up in her grandfather's massive library, in which she read almost every book in there, she was an intellectual powerhouse far more knowledgeable than any common person of that day, or even most well-educated people, which earned her many critics, because she was very outspoken and free-thinking. In fact, most men were uncomfortable by her boldness, which was unusual in the West at that time, and a pretty good reason why she was demonized but she was pretty popular. In the 1870s, her journey would take her to the U.S. Spiritualism was popular in America at the time, so she was right at home. The American people were very open to the idea of paranormal phenomena, especially in densely populated cities like New York. She only became a spiritual teacher after numerous encounters with spirits during seances on a farm in New York held by two brothers, where she met Henry Steele Alcott, and grew close to him. Olcott was a respected writer and intellectual in New York society, who even investigated Lincoln's assassination as well as corruption during the Civil War. This would be a door for her into the public's eye, as Olcott was already well-established, and the two were very fond of each other, plutonically though, and they were both equally interested in spiritual phenomena. Madame Blavatsky was never a glossy-eyed believer of anything, though, pointing out fraud wherever she found it, quite belligerently, too. She would also point out hypocrisy, saying that every hour that passed, humanity cared less for truth and more for gold. Her popularity with the press grew as she defended spiritualism from critics, or attacked those who were charlatans. In fact, a lot of people think that one of her flaws when dealing with the public eye was her willingness to just respond to everything. Olcott's already known presence in the press aided in her rise, but her wit was just as sharp, if not sharper, than others in the press. She really came into her own boldly. This inflamed many sensitive egos of the time, but also helped her to become popular with the higher class as well as common people. She also became an author, which Alcott no doubt helped in, but she turned out to be a very talented writer. In 1877, her book Isis Unveiled put her on the map and cemented her legacy in the history of spiritualism. The book shared Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy and religious and spiritual insight. 
Olcott was there during the writing process and allegedly witnessed supernatural occurrences during the writing, swearing the madame was assisted by non-corporeal entities while she wrote the book. When asked about it, she said that they were adepts, also known as masters, these masters having a large influence in her rise and fall. She would also claim to see instructions for the book in The Astral Light, or The Inner Worlds, which sounds insane. Isis Unveiled would be filled to the brim with religion, philosophy, and science, but was hard to understand without the correct knowledge or terminology. The book was really popular and is still commonly read to this day, and Madame Blavatsky became a well-known name. A group would form around her and would become the Theosophical Society, founded in 1875. Their pursuit and wisdom called Theosophy, a lodge dedicated to the study of occult phenomenon, with spiritual enlightenment and the enlightenment of human civilization their goal. This would encompass all religions and mystery traditions from cultures across the world and throughout human history. And the Theosophical Society is still around even now in modern times, having tons of branches all around the globe. The original creed of the society was, and I quote, to collect and diffuse all knowledge of the laws of the universe. End quote. They called themselves Theosophists original independent thinkers concerning spirituality. But this episode isn't about the Theosophical Society. Blavatsky considered Theosophy divine wisdom, the truth that has existed since time began, and she was the figurehead of her movement as it expanded. Wishing to spread Theosophy further, in 1878, Blavatsky and Alcott moved to India. But they didn't only want to spread their society, they also sought sacred wisdom. Olcott himself believed that there was a massive amount of spiritual wisdom in the East that was discarded by the West. They were welcomed with open arms by the native Indians, who were used to Europeans treating them like backwards heathens. But the theosophists led by Blavatsky took them aback by their genuine interest in their ancient religious teachings. Oppressed by the dominance of British rule, Indians saw them as allies against the war on their cultural traditions by the West. The Theosophists helped in revitalizing Buddhism and Hinduism across South Asia. Blavatsky and Olcott purchased land in India for a permanent residence for the society, which pretty much became their headquarters. But eventually, the so-called ascended masters Madame Blavatsky said to communicate with took too much of a spotlight in the secret society when she never meant it to be that way. It was more of a personal, one-on-one relationship for her, but something Olcott just became obsessed with, and then spread it around the Theosophical Society, making all kinds of other believers in the process. Soon, all the society could really talk about was the Ascended Masters. And this is where a lot of allegations of fraud would come from. It was only a matter of time before everybody else was claiming to talk to the Masters, too which was probably BS. Supposedly, letters would fall from the sky onto people's heads from the Ascended Masters. Also, in a cupboard, letters would appear from the Masters out of thin air. The first meltdown of the society happened when housekeepers, who had been fired for a long while, came forward to the press that they put the notes from the Masters into the cabinet from a secret slit in the wall. The press ate it up 
Critics and the upper class then bombarded media in a smear campaign against the society, which seems fishy. The scandal damaged the society, whether angry ex-servants who were out for revenge or the ex-servants telling the truth. It didn't matter. An investigator came to the HQ of Theosophy in India, pretty much to see if they were a bunch of frauds or not. The person they sent was an incredibly amateur investigator, with very little experience. Anyway, he concluded the Ascended Masters were a fraud. It's hinted this investigator had ties to the society's critics, but was never confirmed. Infighting began in the Theosophical Society, which would lead to the split of Alcott and Blavatsky, but the society would endure. A hundred years later, the people who sent the investigator admitted he was incompetent, and that his report was flawed and shouldn't have been taken seriously. Too little, too late. Goes to show you how biased people were against them at the time. The scandal basically ruined Madame Blavatsky's ambitions in India. So she left in 1885, never to return again. But Olcott stayed behind to continue the secret society's work, despite their now smeared reputation. Blavatsky would then make her home in London, which is where she would remain. Her days of travel were over. She turned out to be very popular in London, allowing all who wished to talk to her to do so. She gave her time and teachings freely while continuing to write about theosophy. It was during this time that she wrote her masterpiece, The Secret Doctrine, which, like many of her books, is very popular even today. It was a synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. Theosophy would grow in London, getting many more converts to the society. Sadly, Lady Blavatsky died at the age of 59 from influenza. How famous she truly was was shown by the universal publicity of her death. No paper or journal did not cover the death of the scandalous mystic. And we'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Don't go anywhere. Hey listeners, Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes as well as all popular podcast apps and web hosts. Or please visit us at crypticchroniclespodcast.com for full content. Send us an email, we would love to hear from you. Join us on our social media to keep updated. And thanks for supporting the show. Please leave us a good review on iTunes to help grow the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. We're back, and with three more mystics to go. Next up, we have Manly Palmer Hall, better known as Manly P. Hall, or just Manly Hall. He was born in Canada in 1901, and was a famous scholar, author, lecturer, astrologer, and an expert in mysticism. You might know him from his most famous book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. If you've never seen a picture of him, he had otherworldly intense eyes and a stern face. Most who love his work consider him a philosopher more than anything else, but he was a hardcore mystic. He never knew his father and was abandoned by his mother. 
He was raised by his grandmother and spent a lot of his childhood traveling around the U.S. with her. Manley Hall was a devourer of literature, even at an early age. But despite his intelligence, he didn't have any formative school beyond the sixth grade. But as an adult, he was still immensely educated by his never-ending vigilant self-teaching. Pretty much better schooled than graduates from colleges many times over. The woman who raised him, his grandmother, died in 1919. So in his late teens, Manley Hall journeyed to Southern California to meet his birth mother for the first time. His mother was a member in the Rosicrucian Society, and very much into mysticism's mysteries. Hall, ever a student and curious thinker, immersed himself in learning a massive variety of occult lore, and turned out to be an adept at learning mystic knowledge, very early on even being paid for an occult lecture, which was just the first of thousands to come. Because Manley Hall, at the beginning of his 70-year career, was a very charismatic speaker with a dominating presence even at such a young age. He was very articulate and quick-thinking, able to answer questions and adapt at the drop of a hat. Uh, Pretty ridiculously, when he was still in his late teens, Paul was asked to become minister of a liberal transcendental church after a single sermon. The congregation had just lost their minister and were really impressed by Manly Hall. So there was something uncanny and mystical about the man from the very start with many elderly church members seeking counsel of someone not even half their age. And he did all this with no pastoral training whatsoever, and was revered by the congregation until he left the church. Paul was most likely one of the youngest leaders of a church in history. He would quickly become expert in Egyptian mythology, Christian mysticism, classical philosophy, theosophy, among many more spiritual wisdoms. Paul began a collection of every philosophical and faith traditions from every civilization in history, as well as esoteric books, which would eventually become the largest library of its kind in the world. Even Carl Jung borrowed from his collection to produce his theories on psychology still used by psychologists today. He would look for common themes in religious teachings across the centuries, leading to a plethora of writings from his scholarly work. For some time, he would write a popular monthly booklet, published on subjects from shamanism, ancient mystery schools, Freemasonry, among many more topics. He was so well-received, he was funded to travel the world seeking arcane lore for his writings, and gave lectures from Europe to Asia in his traveling. After this, there would become few as learned as him on mystical teachings, and he would blow people away by having a lack of notes during presentations, all the knowledge and oratory flowing naturally, which was uncommon. Many found his teachings of Native American traditions particularly interesting because it was previously enigmatic in the underground esoteric societies. When he released his masterpiece, Secret Teachings of All Ages, it became an instant classic. The 27-year-old scholar already cemented in the spiritualist legacy of the revival of ancient wisdoms. And it was during this time he married his first wife, his secretary who helped transcribe secret teachings of all ages. But his life wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. He spent a lot of time away from home, lecturing and performing his work. While back at home, his wife suffered from depression and other sickness. She would eventually commit suicide. And Hall would never talk publicly about her again. When the Great Depression era began, 
He would continue his work, but unlike many of the time, he would greatly reduce the prices of some of his writings, so both the wealthy and the dirt poor could get their hands on them. Manley Hall was distraught with scientism and materialism consuming the mainstream culture, creating one of his greatest desires to enlighten the masses. And with 2,000 years of spiritual oppression over in the West, he could bring many ancient wisdoms to the literary world with little fear of repercussions. And Hall would go on to found the Philosophical Research Society in 1934, which was geared towards higher thought and learning. It was free of all dogma be it educational, political, or ecclesiastical. The society teaches the integration of religion, science, philosophy, and psychology into a united system of living. The end goal was to produce philosophers, enlightened and mature human beings for a new age. Manley P. Hall would even go on to write screenplays for Hollywood at the end of the 30s, hoping to sneak some of his esoteric messages into cinema. The old movie, When Were You Born? was one of the scripts he wrote the studio took seriously enough to produce. It's a mystery story based around the Zodiac. It was a decent movie, but sadly didn't do that well at the box office, easily being what we would call a flop. But that didn't end his mix in Hollywood. He even became close friends with the Dracula actor, Bella Lugosi. The two being so close, Bella Lugosi even asked Manley Hall to marry him to his wife. Now, previous to the World War II era, Hall had predicted peril for the U.S. between 1940 and 1942. So when his prophecy came true with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the mystic was not surprised. Though not born in America and spending much of his life abroad, Hall took the stance of an unabashed American patriot during World War II. He would write a quarterly magazine for the recently drafted soldiers in boot camps to steal their nerves and inspire them, and during this time would write a book called The Secret Destiny of America which praised the country through propaganda, calling the U.S. the New Atlantis, among many more flattering analogies. Eventually, Manley Hall would get married again, and his new wife was extremely neurotic. Seriously, some stories about her are very humorous. But as Hall got older, he would slowly step back from the spotlight, not only to his own organization, but to the public eye too, becoming a serial bookworm and somewhat detached from the times. In the 60s, he would denounce the hippie counterculture and the psychedelic subculture. But his most famous book, Secret Teachings of All Ages, never ceased to be a bestseller in metaphysical bookstores, so he kept having many admirers anyway, including Elvis Presley, another self-taught student of esoterica like he was. In the 70s, he was granted a high degree by the Freemason Secret Society though his health would steadily fade all the way through the 80s. Despite this, he would lecture regularly, even when he was bedridden. The last book he would ever write would be called Meditation Symbols in Eastern and Western Mysticism. And when the book was released, for the first time in a while, the press took note of the event, with a titled story by the Los Angeles Times called Last Western Mystic Thrives in Los Feliz. However, the very old sage would not die without spectacle. A man named Fritz, a man who had been posing as a caregiver but secretly stealing and laundering money from Manley Hall and his wife for years, allegedly murdered the great man after tricking him to alter the will to his favor upon Hall's death. And by this time, Hall was very old and half-senile, 
not half the man he was when he was younger. So Fritz was a pretty big scumbag. Now, I have to say allegedly because officially the case was never solved. But a judge later returned much and made things right in a civil case. The judge himself called Daniel Fritz a con man and took no favor towards his case whatsoever. There was never enough evidence to convict Fritz of murder, though. Manly P. Hall has been dead a while now, but the Philosophical Research Society, or PSR, is still around today and continue Hall's work. The self-educated man with little formal schooling gave thousands of lectures during his 70-year career and wrote some of the most profound esoteric books of all time that are still in print today. And unlike many mystics in the public eye, Manly P. Hall was never surrounded in controversy or became infamous, and is easily one of the most famous Western mystics in history. Next up is the mystic Victoria Woodhull. Her birth name, Victoria Claflin. She was born in 1838 in the USA. She was a spiritualist, stockbroker, advocate of free love and equality, a fortune teller, and the first woman to run for president in the history of the United States. This lady was seriously ahead of her time. Like, over 100 years ahead of her time. Her mother was acclaimed clairvoyant and her father a con artist. In fact, her father was so disliked he was chased out of town at one point from his shenanigans. The man was a well-known schemer at other people's expense. Victoria also had a huge family, being one of seven children, though some references say ten. She would receive little to no formal education, not uncommon in those days for women, but she was really smart. Victoria educated herself to the equal of any high educational standard. When she was a child, her mother thought that she had signs of psychic gifts, just like her, and introduced her to mystic teachings. When Victoria was only 10 years old, she claimed to receive visions concerning the Greek orator known to history as Demosthenes. When she was only 15, she was married to a man twice her age. His name was Canning Woodhull. This actually wasn't too uncommon at that time, though horrifying to us. To them, it was reasonable to marry off a much younger girl to a reasonably successful man, the thought being that the girl would be provided for and taken care of. Too bad the guy she married was an alcoholic womanizer who beat her on occasion, and he was selfish about the money he made, using it mostly for his own fun and mistresses. He was a chump, especially since they had two children and one of them with severe mental handicaps. But after much struggle of being married to her first husband, she divorced him in 1864. For some reason, she would always keep her first husband's last name, Woodhull, even keeping it when she remarried later. And no one really knows why she did this, but was probably to give her first husband the finger. Victoria would proclaim to be a proponent of free love, in an age where women, just like children, should be seen and not heard in the male-dominated society of the time. She would tell people it was a woman's right to love who she wanted, and then move on to another if that love faded. This shocked the moral standpoint of people at that time. 
Victoria would move to New York with her second husband after having another one of her visions, where her and her sister would perform as mediums in the city, and allegedly during this time gained useful financial tips from the spirit world. Then they would go on to make profit on the stock market, eventually having their own brokerage on Wall Street. Victoria around this time would join a political group called Pantarchy, which proposed equality in child raising in the community, less dominated landowners for communal sharing of property, and one's right to choose who they wish to love. Victoria was the first hippie, a hundred years before hippies ever became a thing. Her and her sister would produce a weekly magazine promoting women's rights, including prostitution, birth control, and many other inequality issues of the day. In 1870, Victoria would declare that she would be running for president of the United States. And this is in an era that women weren't even allowed to vote. The paper she produced may have covered many of the social issues of the time, but would also expose frauds and the corrupt in the New York City community which would make her just as many enemies as friends. She would speak for the women's suffrage movement before the House Judiciary Committee, but many were offended by the mystic's notions. Still, she stood her ground. But her name was dragged through the mud in smear campaigns, even being drawn with devil wings in many illustrations, and called Satan's wife in the press. When Victoria attacked back, Enlightening the public on a very famous and popular Christian preacher of the day, one of her slanderers, for his hypocrisy and adultery against his wife. Then things really began to heat up for her. The media of the day was horrified at her belief in free love, and a woman's right to choose her own destiny. Victoria at one point was caught with her ex-husband and her husband living under the same roof, as well as lovers coming in and out periodically. And that was cool and all, but it would only lead towards more scandal for her. The ongoing battle Victoria had with her slanderers would lead her to being unjustly jailed, and just because of mail she sent, which spoke truth of their double standards and hypocrisy. Coincidentally, she was jailed at the very time she was running for president, like literally at the time votes were taking place. And needless to say, she lost in her running for the presidency. But that's pretty logical for such a modern woman to be running for president in the Victorian era. She did expose much of the male sexual hypocrisy at the time, which greatly benefited the women's suffrage movement in the eyes of the American public. Eventually, Victoria would divorce her second husband, too. But she would always continue her lectures, inspiring countless women. Then Victoria moved to England with her family and married a prominent banker in 1882 she would still consistently visit the U.S., later even being nominated as the presidential candidate for the Humanitarian Party. And through all of it, Victoria would continue to make her monthly papers and continue her writing. When her third husband died, she gained a lot of wealth and would never remarry again. She would remain involved in the women's suffrage campaigns for much of the rest of her life, eventually dying in 1927. Victoria Woodhull was raised in mysticism that formed who she was, the traveling clairvoyant coming from nothing to being one of the most famous and reviled women in the country for her outspoken ways on equal rights for women. Victoria once said, and I quote, Let women issue a declaration of independence sexually, 
and absolutely refuse to cohabit with men until they are acknowledged as equals in everything, and the victory would be won in a single week. End quote. The next mystic, and the last, is Rudolf Steiner. Steiner was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1861. He created an organization to research spiritual scientific approaches to knowledge named Anthroposophy. Steiner was convinced that humankind was on a path that would inevitably lead to its own destruction. Because of the imbalance of spirituality and nature with the technology-obsessed cultures of the world, If balance wasn't eventually met, he foresaw doom for the human race. Rudolf Steiner was also a respected philosopher, bringing forth social reform and a whole new holistic look at farming, which he was perturbed by with its increasingly mechanized ways. Most of all, the man was an esotericist, a mystic, seeking to unite spirit and science into a single objective way to look at the mysteries. Steiner called his personal work spirit science, and one of his main beliefs was that people should live their lives in a form of ethical individualism. His work would lead to a biodynamic way of agriculture, because he was an adeptly trained scientist, making many, many innovations from agriculture, psychology, education, medicine, and more, most still around today and still growing and adapting on their own to current science. His main interests were metaphysics, philosophy, science, Christianity, epistemology, and esotericism. From a very early age, Steiner became aware of entities and beings seeming to be invisible to everybody else. He would interact with upper worlds, and an intense inner world no one around him seemed to also experience. He experienced many higher levels of consciousness before he was 10 years old. When he was nine, he believed he saw the spirit of a relative who lived very far away, and he and his family did not know that that person had died, because later the family was informed of the relative's death, which I'm sure tripped people out. He considered himself attaining the precondition for clairvoyance by understanding the true nature of time in a spiritual sense. I could not put together what he was talking about there. Rudolf Steiner could see the spirits of the dead leave their bodies, and would follow them as much as he could. When he would tell others of what he saw, he quickly learned no one wanted to hear about it. The mystics seemed to have a clear view into the spiritual world. But we also have to remember that Steiner was also a respected scientist and scholar, so it wasn't a mentally unintelligent or unstable mind that these claims came from but from an extremely respected member of many intellectual communities. He was taught schooling by his father in his early school years, and proved to be an intelligent boy who learned quickly. In 1879, Steiner was able to attend the Vienna Institute of Technology, where he would master philosophy, mathematics, literature, biology, physics, botany, and chemistry, earning himself an academic scholarship. This guy was insanely smart. He would then have many high-skill required jobs, especially in the farming industry. 
1891, he got a decorate in philosophy. Steiner's true passions and interests were always far from the mundane. He would consistently give lectures to Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society and be given honorable duties within the society without ever joining it. He was contradicting in personal views of theosophy. His own point of view did not want to use Blavatsky's Eastern influence. He would build a spirituality focused on mystical, philosophical traditions of the West and European culture in general. And his own organization would flourish. Rudolf Steiner would give countless lectures on spirit science all over the world. He even lectured when World War I broke out, and called the whole thing a human tragedy on all sides. But during and after the war, what Rudolf Steiner fought for caused him to gain the anger of many, basically making him become a controversial public figure. Things like proposing the independence of part of the German Empire making a whole lot of people think he was a traitor. He even had the balls to preach that if the Nazis gained power, then Germany and Europe would be doomed for quite some time. There would be many threats against him, and a man claimed he was a Jew in the press for his anti-Germany mystical views. Being a Jew at this time in Germany, not a good thing. But Steiner would continue to lecture and teach undaunted, which pissed off Hitler, who declared Rudolf Steiner a tool of the Jews and telling his Nazi party to make war on the mystic. At one time when Steiner was giving a lecture, the lights were turned off in the stadium, and smoke gas was thrown in through the windows. Men rushed the stage, presumably to murder him, but Steiner had already escaped through a back door to complete safety, and would still give lectures despite the assassination attempt by the Nazis. Sadly, he would begin to get frail, his age pretty unhealthy for such a crazy time in Germany. And Rudolf Steiner would die peacefully of natural causes before World War II. I think Rudolf Steiner was one of the most badass, peaceful mystics. Especially how he continued to give lectures while flipping off Hitler. The dude was pretty brave and always made a stand against evil in the world. Even basically when no one else would. And what he left behind was a purely altruistic legacy. A mystic doesn't need to be initiated into any cult or religion to gain enlightenment. They don't have to be a part of any movement or group to be a mystic. In fact, you could consider yourself a part of any religion and still be a mystic. And on top of that, there's many different types of mysticism. But I'll share a theme of independent takes on spiritual matters. The definition for the word mystic is involving or characterized by esoteric, otherworldly, or symbolic practices or content, such as certain religious ceremonies and art, spiritually significant, ethereal, and I could go on, there's many more definitions. A mystic is a person who seeks or believes in the possibility of getting insight into mysteries, transcending ordinary human knowledge through direct communication with the divine, or immediate intuition in a state of spiritual ecstasy. And enough with the definitions. Oddly, they always seem to be far more intelligent than average people. And this overview of famous mystics all cover people who had a hand in altering the fate of millions. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. 
These first seven episodes we're launching with were not only for practice, but to get in the right groove. Also to give you an idea of our interests for future episodes. We'll cover pretty much most things supernatural, mystical, unexplained, metaphysical, or just plain weird. We'll cover recent event topics, old lore, books, and everything in between, with even guest co-hosts and interviews down the line. And I promise I'll always work on being a better host as episodes go on. Please contact us at crypticchroniclespodcast.com to give us your feedback on the show, or ideas for future shows that would interest you. We really want to keep an open dialogue with listeners and be transparent with you. If you've enjoyed the shows, please give us a good review on iTunes to help launch us. And special thanks to producer Ashley. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bam boom.